On this episode of China Unscripted, the Chinese Communist Party has infiltrated every level of American government, from congressmen to governors, even mayors. It's all part of the Chinese Communist Party's plan to dominate America. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Emily de la Briere, senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and co-author of the new monograph, All Over the Map, the Chinese Communist Party's Subnational Interests in the United States. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. Uh, so this, this new report, it's, it's really interesting. But so, you know, why, why is China targeting governors and other state and local officials? Yeah, so China realizes that the U.S. system is fragmented and decentralized. Historically, that's what. Been- <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she means that kind of fragmented and decentralized. I think ah, she means the on purpose one. Got yeah. <laughs> sort of l- limiting the authority of federal government kind of constitutionality, right? This is our Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and that's one of our strengths, right? But Beijing also realizes that that can be used against us. And the decentralized system can be used as a window in because subnational governments, they're not used to using national security as a primary or thinking about it really in general, but it's certainly not their mandate. Um, Weak players within them can be identified. They can be picked apart. And their mandate is really to ensure short term economic boons for their localities. And that's precisely what China promises even if Beijing doesn't usually follow through with that. They, they, they don't follow through? It's a real shock, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yet, like, that mistake keeps being made over and over on the part of state and local governments. And we talk to them, right? And we say, like, here, this is a threat. And you know, increasingly, they seem to be receptive. But the response is, wait, you mean a Chinese company says, and we're going to come invest in a solar facility in my state, and I'm supposed to say no to that. And that's a surprise because that goes against everything that state and local officials are supposed to be doing. Yeah, I would imagine there would be some kind of backlash from their constituents that, you know, like, why why are you doing this? Like, why can't we have this money to build a thing? No, like, why are they they getting, you know, Chinese workers and Chinese companies to build these things? Oh, I mean, I don't, but like, what you're talking about, Emily, is the fact that governors are supposed to be bringing more economic activity to their state, right? Exactly, exactly. And there's pushback if they say, wait a second, that economic activity, or they think they, their risk's being pushed back. If they say, wait a second, that economic activity comes with a whole lot of strings attached. And these companies might not be like all other companies who are offering us actual economic development. I guess that just seems so shocking to me because, you know, we live and breathe, you know, China. It's it's kind of hard to imagine that like like really none of these officials have like any clue that like the Chinese Communist Party is an authoritarian regime that might not be on the up and up that there might be some kind of collusion between companies in a communist country. I don't know. I mean, uh, Emily, you said you talked to some of these officials. What is their reaction usually? I mean, I think it. We Again, as you said, we live and breathe it, right? And we know that there's no such thing as a private Chinese company, that any economic outreach on the part of a China-based entity is fundamentally guided by the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. But, you know, a state local authority, 
that's used to economic development projects, they probably aren't going to think of that first. They're just not, I mean, they're not steeped in this. And even the federal government isn't. Like, it's still a battle for the federal government to prevent Chinese transport companies from filling the contracts for our national infrastructure. And if the federal government, which is like the national security arm of our system, hasn't realized that, then it you know, isn't a huge surprise that state local authorities aren't entirely on board. That said, I do think they're waking up to it. And I think that, I mean, they're very much activated by the interests of their communities. They don't want to hurt their constituents. And so I do think that there is a growing receptiveness on their part to the risks of China's influence efforts. That said, there isn't always an alternative. Like They need investment. And if the only player that's coming to them and saying, hey, we're going to invest in new industrial facilities in your state is a set of Chinese players, what else are they supposed to do? That's actually very interesting. It's like the Belt and Road. Yeah, we were just talking about this related to, you know, other countries in Africa or Southeast Asia or something where maybe China is the only like country saying, we're going to give you loans, we're going to invest here. It didn't really occur to me to think about the fact that that could be happening within the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. We're, you know, we as a system are in precisely the same boat. And I don't think we realize it, which also, of course, doesn't mean that we don't realize the degree to which Beijing is turning our system against us in the same way that China is turning the international development system against the world. Hmm. I was thinking about the um, Australian state of Victoria and Premier Daniel Andrews had uh, a few years ago signed essentially a Belt and Road deal directly with China, even though he's the premier of a state and not a federal official. And there was quite some controversy about that in Australia. But I, I was like, oh, well, this is an Australian thing and he's kind of a one-off, but <clears throat> perhaps it's not, uh, he's not such a one-off if this is happening across the US. Yeah. Um, Australia is actually interesting because they've, because of cases like that, they've really woken up to this problem. Um, and they serve as a good example, at least in terms of their analysis of having recognized what China's state local influence efforts entail, and at least already started discussing this, whereas we're kind of late to the conversation in terms of realizing this is happening. You think the US is behind Australia on this? In terms of recognition that it's taking place, Yes. Um, I don't think that conversation about China's subnational influence efforts is in the drinking water here, whereas a lot of the English language conversations you'll see about it during you know, we did in our research were coming out of Australia. Well, until this podcast comes out right. and, which, and then all the kids on TikTok will be talking about this. That's right. Oh, man, that's a whole <laughs> other story. I would, I would say Australia really should be the uh, koala in the coal mine. Uh, no, that, that's never mind. I'm, I'm, I apologize to everyone watching. You no, know, people really like koalas. They don't like to hear them getting hurt, Matt. That's true. Well, yeah, that was what your joke was about. Look what China's doing to those koalas. Hey, there, there we go. You're absolutely right, Emily. Title of the episode. Well, so in your report, you mentioned that there was a Chinese think tank that actually studied the attitudes of uh, like U.S. governors towards China. Uh, what did they find? So one of the most remarkable thing about China's subnational influence efforts is how explicit they are about what they're doing. 
There's, it's always the case. They're always very, very clear about what they're doing. And yet like, we're planning to take over the world. It's in our white papers. It's in our nobody, five-year economic plan. Nobody reads white papers, Matt. I, well, I mean, they should. <laughs> and quickly, before I answer your actual question to the Australia point too, there are a bunch of Chinese academic discussions about how the U.S. system is such that you can develop parallel diplomacy efforts. And if you don't like what's going on at the national level, you just get the state level officials to follow, do your bidding. Um, and in the same way, you can have a Belt and Road type agreement on the part of an Australian state leader. You can have a U.S. governor carry out exactly the industrial plan you want him to carry out, even if Washington has decided that it's going to compete with China. Right. Actually, you know, that that reminds me because I'm, I'm from California and I remember uh, our former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, was like he went to China to explore getting China to build a high-speed rail in California. Uh, more recently, Governor Newsom bought millions of, of masks for COVID from China, despite him, you know, he could have bought them from the U.S., right? So a lot of these these governors are, even in California, where you think, you know, they live and breathe China's air, <laughs> right? They, they, they should know. And yet they're like the furthest behind. But high-speed rail, it wasn't just um, Schwarzenegger. I remember Richard Daly, who was the governor of Illinois until like 2011, did the same thing. Because Illinois needs high-speed rail? That was, yeah, it was like wow, kind of okay, like praising great. China's high-speed rail and wanting mm -hmm. Chinese companies to come build high-speed rail in Illinois. Wow. To, to get to get to all those those top destinations in Illinois. Well, I mean, Chicago's in Illinois, so... I guess that's true. <laughs> uh, okay, no, fair enough. I, I forgot that Chicago's not its own state. Okay. Chicago actually has a close, I think, sister city relationship. I no longer a city, but it's like a pretty core um, player within China's efforts to use sister city relationships to foster influence. Yeah, that's definitely something we, we want to talk about. But on the California case, there's also a whole case study, like a Chinese academic case study of Jerry Brown, the former governor, and how he and China's relationship with him is a perfect exemplar of how to carry out, quote unquote, parallel diplomacy or subnational diplomacy. Ooh, well, I want to hear about Jerry Brown. Well, he's, he's no longer governor, so, you know, it's OK. It'd be OK if you were governor, too. But yeah, I mean, I'm interested to hear that because if it's a good example of it, like, well, like, how did they influence him? Um, the the has included, and I might butcher it now because I haven't read this case study in some amount of time, exchanges. So simply you know, cross exchanges to China slash to the U.S., um, joint investment, I think some university-focused stuff. I'm now forgetting the details, so fault on me for raising this case study. But I think what was most striking about it was just that you could identify a particular area, so California, and then carry out an entirely different form of diplomacy and an approaches within slash in parallel to the larger country to country relationship. Well, to go back to what we were talking about before, like you were saying that it's pretty explicit what the Chinese, what they what they say they're going to do with these governors, uh, and to go back to Chris's question about that uh, think tank, think tank. Study. yeah, what did what did they find when they were looking at U.S. governors? Thank you for bringing me back on track. So, this is a Chinese think tank that I believe in 2019 published a report of 
every American governor and whether they were friendly towards China, um, hostile or neutral. And they used public statements to answer this. It wasn't, it's not exactly the most robust methodology. So I, like, I don't think we can take it as any ironclad finding about the governors, but they went through and they ranked them. Um, and the report starts with the assumption that this is important, that targeting influence efforts to state leaders is a critical part of China's um, campaign vis-a-vis the United States. And then goes on to say, here are players who are activated or not activated on China's manipulations of the trade environment, on China's human rights abuses, on China's propaganda. And then it colors in the United States as to friendly or unfriendly on that front. Well, I just think it's so interesting that, you know, China is like specifically taking the time and putting the resources into studying local U.S. officials. That's not something the U.S. is doing to China. Like it just shows a completely different uh, focus of the government. Yeah, and this is probably all I imagine done through the United Front Work Department, which is like the, that arm of the Communist Party that's specifically designed to coordinate efforts at influence operations inside China and worldwide, right? So it's all this like very like coordinated, but officially part of the central you know, the, the central communist party. Exactly. One of the major nodes um, that's used in the U.S. but internationally is the China People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, or the CPIFFC, which is a United Front affiliate. And it's explicitly charged. It's the subordinate entity of United Front work that's specifically charged with fostering relationships with subnational players all across the world. So do they function as an official official government organization? Or are they kind of like, uh, you know, if you say it's the Association for Friendship, are they functioning as some kind of like nonprofit friendship association kind of thing? So they're a government organization, but they set up or they're affiliated with entities that are registered abroad as nonprofit type things. But yes, yeah, sorry. Original question, they do not declare themselves necessarily formally to be a government entity. They do. And so they, they would be like a for, registered foreign agent. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think they're recognized as this, at least now. I don't want to you know, perjure myself or lie, but if they, if they have a history of obscuring the ties, it's now like very much acknowledged or clear that they're a government player. But if you're, say, like the governor of West Virginia or something or the governor of Idaho or Montana and there's an organization that's called the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries and they want to have an event with you, like that doesn't sound – that sounds pretty – It's about friendship, Shelley. Yeah, it sounds pretty innocuous, right? Exactly. And if they want to invite you on a trade delegation to China, that sounds fantastic, or vice versa, if they want to host the trade delegation. And then, of course, you get layers down as well, because CPAFFC is also affiliated with or supports these U.S.-registered nonprofits that have similar names, like the U- you know about U.S.-China exchange or about U.S.-China friendship. And you know those aren't explicitly CPAFFC. Those are definitely not explicitly government-tied. It's that It would be that much more difficult for your average state, local level leader to see those and realize what they were. But this, uh, it basically means U.S. politicians are getting, you know, free trips to China. Yeah, 
well, part of that, part of that is ensuring exchanges, so trips to China, and then on the part of Chinese officials or leaders to the U.S. And on those trips, of course, the U.S. local level leaders interact with, they meet not only government players, but also leadership of state-owned entities um, that might be seeking to invest in or acquire resources from the state, also not state-owned, but state-guided players, probably media entities as well in the process. The whole network of China's influence campaign um, it becomes part of those visits. Yeah, I really get a sense of how you say the Communist Party is taking advantage of sort of the fractured system of U.S. politics, like state government, state governments are to a degree independent from the federal government, and they can, on their own, make economic decisions. They don't need to get federal approval for everything. But in the context of a hostile authoritarian government that has very publicly said exactly what they're doing, it seems amazing to me that, like, you know, this, this can just, this can happen so easily and for so long. Absolutely. And I mean, you kind of, on the one, on the one hand, it should not necessarily be up to the state local level leaders to have figured this out and taken concrete action. Like this seems to be the kind of thing that in an ideal world, the federal government realized and realized decades ago, and then taking the steps to equip local level leaders to rec- to recognize and act on. But clearly that hasn't happened. So now like, we're at the point where it has to fall to state local level leaders to figure it out. Well, that was one of the questions I had. Does the federal government realize what's going on? There's been some amount of awareness and growing awareness over the past two to three years. So under the last administration, the CPAFSC, which we just spoke about, had set up in, I think, 2015, a U.S.-China Governors Forum, which was an annual event in which um, U.S. governors and then provincial-level leaders in China met, um, and this was supposed to be an avenue for influence. So CPAFFC had set this up. They also have another forum for state legislators that does a similar thing. Um, The last administration terminated the agreement that allowed the U.S.-China Governors Forum to take place and did so amid a number of public statements regarding Chinese malign influence in the U.S., including at the local level. So there was definitely an awareness that that indicated. I think that awareness has continued, but there hasn't, that is a very tactical response, right? It hits at one very specific manifestation of China's campaign, but not at the larger whole. And that actually hasn't been built upon in any more strategic way. I mean, yeah, your report mentions this China-U.S. governors like forum, and I hadn't realized that this was even a thing. But it seems like they had put a lot of effort into this. Oh, yes. And it was the product of national government level effort that led to this being formed. A ton of Chinese media would cover it. Pretty high level announcements and presence at it. And it seems to have led to a host of economic agreements, um, including economic agreements in fields that since have seen China hollow out American industry, like, for example, the solar industry. Um, and similar level effort has been put at other elements of you know, subnational ties between China and the U.S., like the State Legislators Forum, 
um, but also like the sister city relationship. Well, for the governor's form, didn't Xi Jinping speak? Yes. When he visited the U.S., you know, on the trip where he lands in Seattle first before going to visit Beijing or visit Washington, um, which really indicates priorities, he attended the governor's forum and spoke at it. Hmm. And that's 2015, right? That visit is 2015. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned this has been going on for a while, though. How, For how long has the Chinese Communist Party's subnational influence operations in the U.S. been going on? Is it like two decades old, like seven decades old? I mean, what, what are we looking at? That's a great question. So in terms of what we looked at in our research, we didn't... We found things from the early 2000s, but we didn't really look beyond that. However, it's so in line with China's broader strategic approach and a broader strategic approach that's been underway for well beyond two decades that I would expect that to one level or another, this is a well beyond two decades long campaign. I think it would be interesting to discuss, like, what are the consequences of this kind of influence the Chinese Communist Party has on a uh, local level in the U.S., not just governors, but you mentioned state legislatures. It goes it goes all the way down. Uh, yeah, what are the consequences of this? I know you mentioned the solar panel industry. That's a great example. Yeah, I think it makes sense to put this influence campaign and its consequences in terms of you know, this is a mechanism through which China can implement its larger strategic vision and what are the consequences of that at a local level. So in exerting subnational influence, China tries to acquire American resources. So for example, intellectual property, um, it tries to cement a role for itself in critical American supply chains and ultimately to hollow out U.S. capabilities in those in order to foster dependence. So solar would be a great example there. Also, China cannibalizing the automotive industry in Michigan would be another example there. Um, China also tries to do a similar thing in trade relationships to make sure that local economies rely on trade with China, um, as, for example, in agricultural states. Could you talk a little bit more about like either the solar or the the car manufacturing, um, like how that how they hollowed that out through the use of this? Yeah, so. In the early 2000s, America dominated um, production of polysilicon, which is the critical input for solar panels. Um, and really, the U.S. dominated most solar energy production and industrial capacity and had major technological advantage in this field. Beijing began to prioritize the industry um, and in doing so set about investing in partnering with and acquiring U.S. players in the field in order to obtain their intellectual property as well as um, generally like the expertise or know-how or processes. That was a larger effort, um, which ultimately, in large part because of Chinese government subsidies, allowed them to overtake American solar producers such that today the entire industry is controlled by China. China makes the majority of the world's polysilicon. You really can't make a solar panel without Chinese products. A number of, so when you look at China's subnational influence, for example, the uh, programs, for example, the Governor's Forum in the 2010s, you see a host of 
agreements in the solar sector being formed. So at a governor's forum, there were agreements about China investing in a solar production facility in a state or um, committing to partner on a different one. And those are the kind of agreements that ultimately fueled Beijing's effort to leapfrog in this industry. And they also did the same to the automobile industry, because I didn't realize that was happening with cars. So it's less um, direct or at least less clearly played out in the vehicle sense. But especially since 2015, China has acquired a number of auto relevant facilities, especially in Michigan. Um, But because that's not a sector sector hub, but really throughout the United States. Um, A number of the Chinese companies that have done this are state-owned players. So AVIC has really led the charge. And they've done it in large part via interaction with state-level leaders. But we're not buying Chinese cars in the U.S. So what what are they acquiring? So there are two things probably that um, are the most obvious in terms of the implications. First is that China doesn't dominate right now OEMs for cars, but the part, like auto parts and things that go into the ultimate finished car product, um, a number of those value chains are dominated by China. Well, tires actually is a good example of that. Um, through acquisitions, primarily actually overseas acquisitions, less um, domestic companies, uh, China has become probably the leading player in tire manufacturing. There are other, like, you know, much more technical auto parts that I can't pull up um, top of mind, but um, China plays a much more significant role. Just if you look at, like, trade flows in terms of the things that together constitute a vehicle rather than the vehicle itself. So if I buy an, an American car made in America by General Motors, uh, it could still have Chinese tires and Chinese like uh, electronic components and that sort of thing inside this American car. Exactly. Um, But the other beat is that Beijing is competing not just for like the legacy automobile industry, but especially for the electric vehicle industry. And that's somewhere where, you know, leapfrog capabilities and capabilities that are fueled in large part by, or at least in part by, partnerships with advanced international players, um, including through investments in order to acquire uh, capabilities. So if you look at the emerging electric vehicle landscape, Chinese players are pretty huge in it. Um, And, or even in the, even in like companies that aren't Chinese players, Chinese investment and also reliance on major parts like batteries. I mean, we've been telling Elon Musk not to go to China, but he won't listen to us. He's already there. Yeah, I mean, my, my fear is that within you know two years from now, China will basically dominate the electric vehicle uh, battery industry. So it's not that you're going to buy Chinese cars, but your your American car, your Tesla, will actually have a Chinese battery, and uh, will be dependent on that Chinese we'll battery, right? Yeah, and then like we won't even be able to make the batteries in the U.S. anymore. And not just that, but things like the Build Back Better plan, uh, you know, actual in American investment and subsidization of uh, you know, green energy, you know, building solar power plants, it's, it's, but it, it's, 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 it's all it's, helping China. Well, it's, it's you know, green, but the cobalt is mined by children in the, you know, DR Congo and then the 
other parts, you know, it's put together by Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's made in Xinjiang. Well, the, the, the Uyghur slave laborers are actually quite good at putting together the polysilicon, I've heard. Yeah, but yeah, just U.S. taxpayer money going to ultimately Chinese companies in the green sector, especially if they dominate the electric vehicle market. And just on the EV stuff with batteries, I think we're pretty much already there. Like cattle or and other Chinese battery manufacturers supply for pretty much every major EV maker out there. Um, and also, like, we're already buying Chinese um, electric buses and things that aren't specifically vehicles. Um, they're already there in terms of the, like, fully assembled um, vehicle. And I don't think it's a huge leap to think that that could happen, you know, to the vehicles themselves, not just their batteries within the next five years. This really is like the Belt and Road. Like, there's all this promise of economic investment and development, and in the end, it just ends up gutting... The local government. It's, it's, just, it's just all all the rest of us have to buy from China. Uh, but the our, I mean, I think the one piece that's different is, well, maybe it's not different. I don't know. Like our local China, uh, our local U.S. states, are they getting loans from Chinese companies and th- uh, Chinese banks and that kind of thing? Um. Yeah, I think that would be a big difference. Except that, in, in, you know, to an extent, you have the same thing play out just for our big companies like during the financial crisis china bailed out gm um and i mean that's obviously different than our states getting bailed out by china but it kind of leads to a similar dynamic i think another thing that's different than belt and road and like probably worse is that china's not just creating dependence and hollowing out our industry it's also using this influence campaign to acquire are like advanced tech resources. So it's kind of getting us from like both top and bottom um, in terms of like, you know, the very bottom level, like dependence ability to make something, but also the very high level, like our advantage in technological leadership. I'm just really depressed right now. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I guess like what really can be done about this? Because obviously the federal government does have limited ability to control the states. But, you know, you were talking about how things are, you know, there is more awareness. Like, I, I got to assume that, you know, if the if the U.S. government is doing a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics because of genocide, state governors have to be like, huh, I wonder if something's not right about China. Does this mean we're allowed to talk about how we should have a full boycott, not just a diplomatic boycott? Can we go to that real quick? Oh, do we want to pull the trigger on the? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a diplomatic boycott is not a real thing. Like, if we're going to boycott, we should just boycott. Well, and the, and the counter argument to that is, of course, then we're punishing athletes, right? So how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's really hard. It would be terrible for the athletes and I would feel terrible for them. We've done it before. Also... You know what I would really love to watch would be like an alternate Olympics among and held by countries that aren't committing genocide. We, we've we actually, you know, been on our show encouraging the, the Chinese government to support the Olympic boycott because then they can win all the medals. Yeah, there we go. You can choose between watching two different Olympics. One is China and genocide committing countries against themselves and the other non-genocide committing countries. That seems great. Yeah. 
And and I, I think I think we know which one the IOC would prefer to work with. <laughs> They're not political, Matt. They don't take sides. They're all about using sport to bring people together. Don't ask anything about Peng Shuai. She's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I do think it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I totally understand the argument that a diplomatic boycott is not enough. However, I have to say, at least it's something because... You we're know, used to nothing. We like we were looking at uh, the 2008 Olympics and looking at, for old photos uh, from the 2008 Olympics, and there's George W. Bush, like yucking it up with Bill Gates and uh, you know Gordon Brown, the UK Prime Minister at the time, and David Beckham is there, and uh, the Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd is there, like everybody having like a great time together in Beijing. So that is definitely worse. Uh, than what's happening now. But there could be more done. Yeah. I think what makes me just so activated on this, though, is reading about China or you know, Chinese writings on the 2008 Olympics and how much that helped their global posture um, and their ability to influence the global system. And it's just like, how can we do that again? Have we learned nothing from the past decade and a half? What do they say about that? So there's the obvious stuff of like the Olympics are a source of national prestige. And so by hosting them, like it became clear that we're an international leader, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also um, discussion about like the corporate partnerships, including with advanced technology companies that were formed, you know, through and as part of the Olympics. And therefore that gave Beijing access to, you know, a number of new technologies, including technology that can be used for surveillance purposes, um, and almost certainly is, because like if you're partnering with a big tech company on, I don't know, crowd control systems for the Olympics, that's something that you can, you can use more broadly in your surveillance state. Then there's also this whole line of um, argument about how hosting the Olympics helped China to form, to foster, and to take advantage of relationships with international media outlets. And how that can be used in the future or could be used in the future to disseminate Chinese propaganda. (laughs) Well, it's it's, it's another one of those things. They just they just say it and nobody pays attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is we weren't around then. So we we didn't know how to get all that Chinese money. So we just went in the wrong direction and started being critical of the CCP. (laughs) Oh, man. I, I do have to say that it's pretty funny to hear the last two points that you s- talked about because, you know, that I think that's something we don't consider. I did not know about the surveillance, for example. And while it's kind of pretty clear how the Chinese regime uses foreign media as part of their propaganda, to hear them spell it out like the Olympics were great for us for this, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, which then makes me think like – Something like NBC not showing the Olympics would be another step up from just like a diplomatic boycott. Yeah. Well, but NBC already has spent the money to get that 2022 Olympics contract. So they're not going to back out of like a billion dollar deal. Also, the Women's Tennis Association also had a bunch of money invested in China and they pulled out. Yeah, that's that's like an impressive and thoughtful thing for them to do. It's also just amazing that NBC doesn't seem to be being called out at all, right? Like there's been all this pressure on the U.S. government. There's pressure on IOC. But nobody's out there saying, hey, how about you, NBC? Like, does it bother you to be doing this? Yeah, in a sense, they're showing propaganda. 
Exactly, exactly. You're amplifying Chinese propaganda to the international community. Isn't that a little bit weird? Yeah, well, joke's on them because no one cares about the Winter Olympics. <laughs> That's probably the best argument against the boycott out there. I do have to say that, you know, yeah, it's not just Embassy. It's also all of the companies that are going to be putting ads on or sponsoring, you know, the coverage of the Olympics. Just Well, yeah. Uh, recently, we were talking to somebody about how, uh, you know, Coca-Cola was lobbying against the Uyghur slave labor bill. And like, it was like, well, why is Coca-Cola involved in that? Like, they're not, they're not going to be affected by that. It's not like Coca-Cola is made in Xinjiang. But it turned out that like the Communist Party was putting pressure on Coca-Cola to lobby. Otherwise, they would, uh, you know, give Coca-Cola a hard time elsewhere in China. It's just, again, and like, you know, I, I think Coke is an uh, Olympic sponsor. It's just another way that like the Communist Party can make all of these connections with Big American businesses that then also have a lot of influence over U.S. government on a federal and local level. Yeah, and just a similar thing of here are nodes within the U.S. system, whether those are big businesses or whether those are state and local governments, that if you make sure that they are dependent on China, are going to serve as avenues for whatever agenda China has. Do you guys remember... Uh, back in the beginning of COVID, there was that state legislator in Iowa, was it Idaho, who the the local Chinese consulate tried to uh, get him to praise the Chinese government's handling of the coronavirus. Oh, I vaguely remember something. We interviewed him on our show on China Unscripted, oh, but I can't right. remember which I can't remember which state this was. I thought it was Wisconsin. It's, po- it's all, possible. But, all, all the states in the middle kind of blend together for me. Uh, but like the point was that they were going to the point of like contacting state legislators to try to get them to do some kind of soundbite that they could use for propaganda, but right? This, but this state senator basically told the CCP to go pound sand. Yes, but it became news because he he did that. Like, that was not the norm, right? Yeah. Or we don't know if anybody actually took him up on it, but nobody is like, the very few people are saying, like, this happened. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a scary thing. We don't actually know how often, you know, China uses these connections to ask local officials to do something, and they do. Right. I mean, the the, the, the thing we especially wouldn't know about is if they ask a state or local official to just not say something. And then and then you never know. The only cases we get are the ones where someone actually puts his foot down. That must be one in a million. Yeah, in your report, you said something about that China, US, like the state legislatures, uh, that uh, forum is like not really that well documented, right? We, like, we don't really know a lot about what went on there. Exactly. And of course, it's possible that that means it's a non-thing, but I'm more inclined to believe that that means that simply no one's paying attention and therefore that it's like, you know, a black box of whatever deals it is China's trying to make. Yeah. I mean, they they will go. I, I remember many years ago hearing from some human rights activists in like uh, California, I think, about how local, like they were trying to get um, their local city mayors to 
uh, speak up about like issue proclamations like condemning China's human rights violations. And then the Chinese consulate actually tried to put pressure on like the mayor of Santee, California, something like that, to uh, not issue these proclamations. It's it's crazy the level that they will go to um, to try to, you know, suppress negative things uh, towards the Chinese government or to promote them. And it goes back to the whole centralized thing, or fragmented thing, I guess, and then the centralized by contrast. They have a very clear agenda. Every branch of the China's Chinese influence campaign in the United States is out to achieve the same thing. And so, you know, the second any effort in the opposite direction comes up within our decentralized system, they're going to, in a very dedicated way, put pressure to make sure it doesn't happen. And meanwhile, we don't have anything approximating that. And in fact, our system means that when there is an effort, you can break everything else away from it. So then what is the solution? Because I don't think it's that we adopt China's model. No, we couldn't. Like, A, we don't want to because we believe in yeah. not that, and B, it's antithetical to our system. Um, I mean, there's a first thing, which is just information, right? So, like, even if state and local level leaders realize that this is a problem, they then have to be equipped with information to make the right decisions on outreach. So, for example, there's no list out there of Chinese state-owned entities or military-tied entities that you know, could be issued by, for example, the federal government, and then that state and local level leaders could consult when they had investment outreach. Obviously, that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of problematic Chinese players, but it's still a pretty big tip of the iceberg. It's a great first step. Even for those who are resistant to this idea of like this reality that no Chinese company is a private company, if you say here are state-owned and military-tied companies, be careful about them, that's going to be a pretty easy thing to message. Then also there's like having the positive alternative because state and local level leaders need to know that if they say no to the Chinese solar investment in their district, somebody else might make that investment. Um, and the failure of the United States to invest in its own industry and manufacturing is what has allowed Beijing to make these inroads. That paired with guardrails on those investments so like we talked about Build Back Better, what if Build Back Better is like actually the by American provisions in that are actually implemented, right? So then we are making these investments. State and local level leaders don't have to turn to China and the investments are being made by U.S. players, not co-opted by Chinese ones. Like you have this whole web of Chinese you know, government organs that are either explicitly acting as such or not explicitly acting as such and those should be prevented from operating in the United States. Um, and part of it's as easy as saying, CPAFFC, you're an agent of a foreign state, um, you know, stop with these activities. And part of that is more complicated and probably would require better vetting protocols for nonprofits in the U.S. Hmm. Well, so what about like the sister city arrangements? Like that seems like it could be a potential leverage point. Exactly. Sister city relationships. Um, again, the state legislators forum, the trade delegations that CPA FFC organizes, all of these lines of effort under that you know, United Front entity, those are like prime organizational nodes that you could target as a very direct first step. 
Well, I think tell us a little bit more about the sister city arrangement. Like what, how does China use that? Yeah, these are interesting because they exist broadly. So sister city relationships are not unique to China or to China US. It's something that's gone, you know, these have existed for decades. All countries have them. France and French and US cities have sister city relationships. And most of the time, they really just mean like a sign at the side of the road. Um, it's very pro forma and just like a nice little thing that these, that these cities have a relationship. Beijing, however, has realized that they can be channels for influence. Um, and it's very indirect, it's a little bit unclear or difficult to document how precisely China takes advantage of them. What's clear is that Beijing frames them as means to exert influence, that they're managed by CPAFFC as part of its influence campaigns, and that China actually actively works to make sure that as part of the sister city relationships, and especially you know, particularly strategic ones, so ones with bigger cities or ones that are more strategically valuable, as part of those um, there's a clear channel for communication and potentially for exchange, whether that's of people or of financial resources. So often, like, there will be sister city labeled um, events or dialogues that might be accompanied by the announcement of an investment. How do people tell the difference between kind of cultural these cultural people-to-people type exchanges versus influence operations? It's really, really difficult. Um, and it's, and you know, I don't think that's an accident, right? China has very explicitly fused these two lines of effort so that all of it ends up fueling a certain ambition. Um, and it means that you end up in a position where one way or another, identification or action is going to be unfair. Um, and we're making a big choice between efficiency and effectiveness. You could go through every single exchange and really like try to parse it at the most detailed level and decide if it was cultural exchange or influence. And you may or may not succeed even then, but you would be expending so many resources. Um, or mm-hmm. you can say we're okay with this level of risk, um, that some of this is influence as long as there's general awareness as to the risks and let it happen, or you end up cutting off exchanges that are, you know, perfectly benign. Yeah, I was thinking about how, um, you know, back when our, our next New York City mayor, uh, Eric Adams, he was the Brooklyn borough president before, and China had reached out to him on many occasions. He went on several do- trade delegation kind of trips there. Right. And yeah. there was some talk of building like a friendship arch, which never actually got built. Right. But it was. No, I mean, they were going to build this China U.S. friendship arch in the Brooklyn Chinatown. And, you know, millions of dollars were going to be set aside to do this. It, it didn't happen. I mean, it's but... interesting because like it's just Brooklyn, like it's not even of its own city. Right. It's just like a. But the Brooklyn borough president, Eric Adams, went to China like seven times. Yeah. And then became New York City mayor. Yeah. No, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. it's that you, you, the CCP is very good about like finding, getting in at all levels early on. So then when somebody does become 
a mayor or a governor, they already have those connections. Well, this is like the Eric Swalwell thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Where he wasn't a congressman. He was just a local official. And then there was a Chinese spy who was already trying to target him along with lots of other like local government politician level people. Yeah, cast a wide enough net. But what's what's interesting about everything you're saying, um, you know, from like 2000 on, we were told, you know, like, you know, the more uh, interactions there are between the U.S. and China, the more China will change. China will become more, you know, it'll become more of a democracy. You know, people will get more rights, et cetera, et cetera. But everything you're saying, it's, it's, it's just China continues to influence the U.S., but it seems like in like these sister city agreements, it's not like the U.S. is having any influence in China. How How is that just such a thing that there seems to be no, it's only a one-way street as far as who is influencing who? Exactly. It's absolutely one-sided influence. And the more interactions we have, it seems the more the U.S. changes or the more Beijing is able to infiltrate our system. It's not unlike... Um, the trading relationship, right? We had this idea that the more trade there was, the more the U.S. would benefit and also the more we would like open up China. And we've seen the reverse. Um, And when U.S. companies go into the Chinese market, what they find is that they might have some early success, but then they forfeit their technological advantages and a Chinese domestic champion comes up and then they find the U.S. company finds itself pushed out of the market. Turns out they didn't get anything China benefited in a one-sided way. I think we see the same thing in terms of political exchange, and it's a function of um, China's remarkable control over its system and insularity, and also it's like very clear strategic agenda. We haven't had one of those, um, and we've been willing to treat cooperation or exchange as just that, cooperation or exchange, whereas Beijing has seen them as channels to be weaponized across the board. Now, you, you said you have seen things start to change. Do you think that is the beginning of some kind of national directive within the United States about like just sort of a collective understanding of what is actually at stake now? I think there's no doubt that over the past five years, and especially over the past two years, the U.S. recognition of the challenge China poses the degree to which Beijing has infiltrated our system and the risks of that has grown tremendously. You no longer have to convince people. Um, so definitely there's an awareness. Does that mean a national level directive? It's yet to manifest as such. Um, we've reached this point in multiple interludes where you said, wow, there is a widespread consensus in Washington or between the two political parties or in the executive branch, um, or now even among subnational leaders, that this is something we have to do, this being eradicate China's influence in the US. Um, but even as we've said that, and even as we've seen such consensus, we've also continued to see gridlock and back and forth and infighting um, and you know, every step forward, see effectively two steps back which I think is a testament to how strong China's influence is, right? Because whether that's Koch lobbying against the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act or one advocate in the executive branch successfully stonewalling a piece of anti-China policy, it's not necessarily an accident. 
Um, and I think this is going to be a much more difficult contest to organize strategically around as a country because we're not like an insulated country recognizing a strategic adversary. We're a country that's been infiltrated by that strategic adversary trying at the same time to extract it from our decision-making process and to form a competitive response. Do you think it's going to be difficult to expose some of these influence operations, uh, especially if the U.S. government starts talking about it? I'm thinking about essentially um, arguments about racism and how the Chinese Communist Party's managed to kind of weaponize um, racism or an anti-Asian hate and redirect that to mean like criticizing the Chinese government is now anti-Asian hate. I mean, they explicitly did that a couple of weeks ago when they had like some United Front type organization hold a anti-Asian hate rally in London and then get into like a fight with Hong Kong supporters there trying to essentially say that like if you're against you know the the Chinese government's policy in Hong Kong this is anti-Asian hate and so I'm imagining a lot of these you know sister city relationships or cultural exchanges that look more benign even things like Confucius Institutes if you start saying well we can't have Confucius Institutes in our schools or in our uh, universities then you open yourself up to accusations that this is you know racism right like how how can the US um, expose these influence operations while kind of dealing with that issue. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so perverse too, because like, even if, you know, if you look at the Confucius Institute case, getting rid of those is not racism. In fact, they can serve to undermine the freedoms of Chinese and Chinese American students on the campuses. Like there's story after story about people on American campuses being harassed for supporting Hong Kong um, or supporting Tibet or supporting the Uyghur population, um, people who are Chinese or have family in China, and you know, then suddenly finding themselves tailed by a representative effectively of the Chinese state. And that part's not fair. Like the victim here is not the representative of the Chinese state. It's the person who's having their you know, freedom and the freedoms of those they care about uh, stamped on. But how do you get around this? I don't know. It's so difficult um, because China is so good at shaping the narrative. And I think part of the answer is that we need to move away from this kind of tactical game of whack-a-mole where we say this organization has a mandate of U.S.-China friendship is bad and then open our... So, like, if we do that, right, even if that's true, we're A, we're you know, just playing a very tactical game. A new organization like it that's also organized by the United Front is going to pop up in its stead, and we run the risk of having that be labeled as you know, racist or unfair. Instead, we need to be playing a more strategic game where we shore up our weaknesses so that there's less room for these organizations to exert influence, which includes, for example, you know, what I was saying about American industry um, and also includes like ensuring that universities aren't as dependent on money from China. 
So like, A, we need to be doing that. And B, we need to be trying to change the overall environment such that it's not as asymmetric. It's not as one-sided towards China. Not every form of engagement is going to only serve China's interests. And that, I mean, that's A, the only way we can actually compete. And also it's the only way we can do this in a way that isn't you know, unfair at the margin and then levies every action or opens up every action to criticism. So it seems what it's really going to take is for the American public to become aware of the fact that this is another Cold War and China is our rival. It's not like individual, it's not a problem of individual companies or individual groups. It's that great power competition, the word people don't like to use so much. Yes. And also with great power competition comes big moves um, that can have like real short term, that can cause real short short term pain for the United States or for the U.S. economy. Like if we limit, for example, trade relations with China because those are ultimately negative for the U.S., that's going to create short term pain. Um, but that's the kind of thing like we ultimately need to do, and you can only do that if the U.S. population, as you said, recognizes the position we're currently in. So what you're saying is with great power competition comes great power responsibility. Nailed it. And this is why, you know, all the teenagers are going to be talking when this comes out, they're going to be talking about it because we use those kinds of analogies yeah, that the kids we'll, understand. We'll be all over the TikToks. Yeah, <laughs> all the TikToks. The TikToks that are being controlled by Yeah, we're, we're, we're infiltrating their systems. Okay. Okay. It's strategy. Okay. We're taking Tiger Mountain by strategy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for anyone listening who wants to, you know, like learn more about your what you're doing, like do you have a Twitter or where can they follow you? Um, oh, I do have a Twitter. I'm terrible at using it, but I have a Twitter. Um, I think it's like E. Delabriere or something like that. And then my work is on the Foundation for Defense of Democracies website. Right, and we'll put a link to that below. Uh, yeah, and the the monograph that talks specifically about all this subnational influence stuff. Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting read. People should read these documents. And the it's got papers. like the, the states ranked according to like how much the CCP thinks the governors are friendly. Right, like it's it's pretty interesting stuff. I, I do have to say that I didn't recognize any of the governors' names of the friendly states because there were states that I never really paid attention to. I mean, there's states I've never even heard of. <laughs> that's right. Like, well, I mean, but that's the thing, right? Like the Chinese Communist Party is putting forth effort to learn about what all these governors think. And I'm like, who's the governor? Of? The, the, they're, they're better at geography than most Americans. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's probably true. But Like Oklahoma. I'm sure <laughs> you've never even heard of that state. No, it's called Florabama. <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw it on the, on the TVs. Okay. There's a shore down there. Okay. Yeah, surely. All right. This, well, this, this is going downhill really fast. We should yes, let you go. You should. You should. We'll, we'll be here continuing to go down with the ship. Save yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been great having you on. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's really interesting. I was thinking about how far the Chinese Communist Party will go to uh, – promote or especially suppress information they don't like. Did you guys hear about what happened a couple of days ago where there was supposed to be a screening of a Hong Kong related documentary 
in Montreal at this cinema. It was called like Dollar Cinema or something. And they canceled it due to political pressure. And they actually canceled it? Yeah. So, But then the, the this uh, Hong Kong student group at McGill, they found another venue to have this screening at. Wow, that's crazy. So but the like, real loser is the Dollar Cinema. Yeah, but think about it. It's it's called Dollar Cinema. Like, it's a, it's a budget, like, movie theater in Montreal, and yet they came under political pressure for uh, having a screening about the Hong Kong protests. I wonder how they even knew about that. Like... How do you even hear about that? Uh, I mean, I would imagine they were the the organizers were promoting the screening, right? Is this the one Revolution of Our Times that won like the Taiwanese Film Festival award? I don't know if it was that one. I think it was another one. Okay, but you know, the idea is okay. Let's say that you know this Hong Kong student group at McGill starts passing out flyers for this screening, and then somebody at the McGill Chinese Students and Scholars Association mm. sees it. And maybe they alert the consulate. I mean, I'm not saying this is what happened, but this could be something that happens, right? Where then the yeah. consulate will put pressure on, uh, you know, somebody. It's, it's so crazy because it's so local. Like I remember, Chris, when we were in uh, South Korea in 2016 and there was that uh, theater as part of KBS, like the national broadcaster, mm -hmm. and they had canceled Shen Yun, which is the, the Chinese cultural show that was uh, started by Falun Gong practitioners. The Communist Party had pressured the theater to cancel it. And then when we went, you and I went inside the theater, we saw a rehearsal for like this knockoff mainland Chinese run cultural show uh, that was like taking its place. Right. And like, like it was crazy because it's like a dance show. But this is almost crazier because it's like a tiny cinema that you're going to get like, what, 100, 200 people tops to, to see, right? Yeah, I don't even know if the screening was that big. But yeah, yeah it's they will they will absolutely contact state legislators or they will contact mayors. Like they will they will go as far as it takes. Um, Nothing is too small or too insignificant. Yeah, as for them to try to throw their weight around to suppress something they don't like. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that like, our government felt that nothing was too small or insignificant to pay attention to, you know, but like in a good way. I do have to say that there's something about both what Emily was saying and the other podcast we did with Christopher Balding, where the point that they were both making is that the U.S. needs to take some kind of proactive action mm -hmm. to counter what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. And it has to be like a proactive, positive action that kind of is the, the counterweight uh, to the CCP's actions, kind of like what we were talking about with Anders Core, right? Yeah. In the concentration of power thing where he was like, well, the U.S. has this power. It needs to use it in order to be able mm -hmm. to, you know, stand up to the Chinese Communist Party and protect the world from being crushed by it. Which really can only be done when the American public demands it of the government, which is why I think it is important that anybody who, you know, watches this show does share what they learn with their friends and family, like make it part of the conversation. Like people need to be talking about China and a new Cold War. Or even with your local government officials. That's true. You can talk to them sometimes. I mean, I once worked at, as, as an intern at a congressional office. Uh, you know, you can call your congresspeople's office and they will record what you say. Like, 
Yeah. 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 So yeah. make your voices heard. You heard it here first. We coined that term. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jung. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Talk to you next time.